to the rock. If you've ever been involved in a relational conflict in a church setting, you'll benefit greatly from the insights found here in 2 Corinthians. Pastor Paul must defend himself and his ministry against false accusations made by church troublemakers. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse series through 2 Corinthians entitled Strength Through Weakness. All right, we'll get started. <laughs> We are headed back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you recall. I mean, it seems like it's been a long time, and it has probably been a month since we've been back in 2 Corinthians. And so why don't you turn there? If you don't have your Bible, uh, we do have Bibles on the back, and we also project the scriptures on the screens. And so let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Good stuff tonight. Father God, we just thank you for your great and precious promises of the truth that sets our hearts free. And tonight, Lord, we could use a little of that truth and a little bit of that joy that comes with a confidence and assurance that uh, you are working all things out for our good and that uh, you give us your protection and you are carrying us through, Lord. So uh, guide us tonight in our study of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, truth is generally the best vindication against slander. So, and that's exactly what Paul the Apostle is doing here in 2 Corinthians. He's just laying out the truth against all false accusations and unfair criticisms and mean-spirited things that have been said by his hostile opponents there. So he's just laying out the truth, answering all the charges, and letting the truth and his life and his ministry speak for themselves. Now, of course, one of the devil's favorite tools uh, to hinder God's work in the church is to slander its leaders, to ruin their credibility and their reputation, and bring God's work in that community to a screeching halt. And Uh, That's what the devil was up to there in Corinth. That's what the diabolos in the Greek, kind of close to the Spanish rendering for the devil, uh, it means to slander or to accuse falsely. And so uh, he is uh, very skilled at that and he uses it a lot, so much so that that's his name. And so uh, he was up to uh, his old tricks there in southern Greece, a church that Paul the Apostle and a team um, under his leading planted there. And so Paul's detractors were accusing him of all kinds of stuff. And really, 2 Corinthians is all about an answer to these false teachers and their doctrine and also their lies about the Apostle Paul. They were accusing this, this wonderful man of having false motives, of being after their money, of being a boss, uh, bossy, I should say, and being mean, deceptive, uh, manipulative, controlling, unqualified. That's always a funny one to me. I'm telling everybody that Paul the Apostle was unqualified. Uh, <clears throat> 
and uh, weak and all of this. And so uh, there were a couple groups who were spreading these kinds of lies and uh, uh, these troublemakers uh, spewing up the slander were first of all disgruntled church members who got their feelings hurt when they got corrected by Paul. They didn't handle that correction well and then uh, they slandered him and kind of lashed out. Uh, now, the group in focus here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and our diving off point tonight uh, are the envious false teachers who kind of came into town and, and wanted a turnkey congregation, the fruit of Paul's labors for years and years and years. They just wanted to come in and enjoy the fruit of Paul's work there. And uh, not only did they want to enjoy being leaders in the congregation. They were totally filled with false ideas. They didn't know what they were talking about. And so we, we meet them throughout the book of 2 Corinthians as Paul now continues here in chapter 4, defending himself and the ministry against these baseless, bogus uh, charges. So verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we've received this incredible ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, <clears throat> nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we're going to take a look at these opening words of the chapter. And with the Lord's help, Lord, Lord willing, we will get through the chapter tonight. And so truth being gen generally the best vindication against slander, Paul kind of Resort, Paul resorts to simply telling the truth here. And we're going to get the truth about Paul's team and how they conduct themselves in this world, the truth behind men's resistance to the gospel, and the truth about the message that Paul preached and the message that we preach as well. And so he begins here tonight talking about the ministry that God has entrusted to him and to us and how glorious it is and how the sacred trust that's been given us in this glorious ministry really dictates and determines how we live our lives. And so he gets started here and saying, and note takers number one, as we work our way through verses one through six, uh, we have a ministry and it's just not any kind of ministry. It's a glorious, magnificent, sacred ministry. Far superior to the Old Testament Judaism, which is really the flavor of the false teachers. They came in saying, you got to get busy. you got to start doing this. you got to stop doing that. A lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. 
And they tried to take them back to observing the Sabbath and dietary restrictions and all of this. But he says, no, we, therefore, we have this glorious ministry. And the therefore just reminds you of chapter three, where he's comparing the ministry of the false teachers who want to take them backwards to the commandments in stone that leads to thou shalt not and to death and condemnation. Uh, instead of the fulfillment of Judaism, the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his powerful resurrection that lives and makes our, our hearts alive. And so it's not about rules. It's about relationship. And so he starts with this uh, idea of this great, wonderful ministry that just kind of causes us not to lose heart. You don't want to give up. And, and Paul's been through so much. He says, we, we, don't lose, we don't lose heart because by God's mercy, we've been entrusted to this beautiful thing. Let me show you. I'm going to speed up to chapter five and just show you the, the, the nature of the ministry we have, that it's so wow. And this is what he's talking about. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, not just Paul, but every Christian, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, look at this. We are Christ's ambassadors representing God the Son as though God were making his appeal through us. And you can go back to our original text. Now, that's just crazy. He says, we have this ministry. And that's why we don't lose heart, because we represent Christ. Even though we were once estranged from him, once his enemy, he's going to say, hey, I want you to be in my service. I want you to represent me. I want to use your lips and your mouth and your hands, your feet, your life. We're going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have this task that angels would envy. It's just crazy. And he says, that's why we don't lose heart because we've been entrusted by God's mercy with such a glorious ministry. We don't lose heart. Now, interesting, the word, the phrase to lose heart isn't what you think just like to become discouraged. The idea behind the ancient Greek word for lose heart is of to be faint-hearted and a coward. The ancient Greek word has the connotation of not only a lack of courage, but of bad behavior and evil conduct. So in other words, he says, even though we, I've been pounded into the ground, and it seems, and the false uh, teachers were saying, everything about this guy, he, you know, nothing goes right in his life. He's always in jail, and he's always in trouble. And he says, I've been through a lot, that's true. But because of the sacred trust, the e- eternal souls are on the line. Um, he says, I'm not going to use my hardship as an excuse to become bitter and and, and to, to just kind of drop out of the race and say, you know, things haven't gone right for me. I'm, you know, I got wounded. I had a lot of bad church experiences. And so now I need to take a break and do this. And I'm not serving the Lord anymore because woe is me. I'm a victim and everything's gone bad and all of that. 
He says, because we have been entrusted by God's mercy to speak for Christ, the message of reconciliation that takes a person from hell to restore them to to God and eternal life, I can't give up no matter how it seems God is treating me. He says, we don't lose heart. How can I? I'm no quitter, not with this kind of magnificent ministry. The honor and the importance and the sacredness of the trust prevents us from giving up. Amen? So he says, we don't lose heart. And with this kind of ministry and this magnificent privilege, he says, we live with integrity. So we, moving on now to, to, to verses two through four, he says, <clears throat> we reject all kinds of shameful behavior because it's God's work in us. We don't try to trick anyone as do our detractors, nor do we distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God. Now, verse two, where it says, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Here's what it means. We live uprightly and all who are honest know this in their hearts. That's what he's saying. He's saying because it's the Holy Spirit in us, we have to be holy because he's holy. Because it's God at work. The fear of the Lord for those who are conducting ministry and business in Christ's name, that keeps you on the straight and narrow path. And that's what he's saying here. Now, the Judaizers, they're called Judaizers to make Jewish all right, is the Judaizer. And so what they wanted to do is say, hey, why aren't you guys keeping the Sabbath? And they wanted the men to be circumcised and they wanted kosher foods only and all of this stuff. And uh, they're the ones twisting and distorting the Bible to make it appear that it's saying something that it's not. And he says, we don't do that, but they do that. Now, just like today, to distort the word of God there in your verse The prosperity gospel, sometimes it's called the word of faith or health and wealth. And what they do is just in a sentence to describe it to you. They use God, you use God to get what you want instead of God using you to accomplish his will. That's really easy to understand. And and so what they do is is they cut and paste. They distort the word of God. So what, what you get is all the God wants to prosper you scriptures, but none of the cross and none of the disciplines and none of the pick up your cross and deny yourself and, and how you should count it all joy when you fall into trouble. So all of that's out. <clears throat> and then distorting the word here, just in the contemporary setting, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who don't acknowledge that Jesus is God. And so they distort the scriptures and they'll just show you all the scriptures where it says Jesus is a man. Well, we know that. First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse five says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And they love that one. And I'll go, well, let me show you another one. Colossians 2, nine. For in Christ dwells the fullness of God in human form. So you got to have both of them, but we're going to uh, have a turn a blind eye to distort. Okay, uh, just for their book. Uh, and one last thing, and then we'll move on. The postmodern crowd, the new gospel, it's called emergent church. And why it's called emergent church theology is they're saying that the world has grown up now. 
all right? And so they, uh, the world has put on its big boy pants, all right? And they call that postmodern. So we're in the world. The world's grown up, so we're after being grown up, right? So postmodern. Now, the, in a postmodern world, we, we emerge out of the archaic ideas of hell and sin and judgment and condemnation and uh, all of this. We emerge out of that into a broader understanding, a more enlightened, more palatable gospel, a more grown-up postmodern version of the gospel, even though Paul the Apostle says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, if we or an angel or anybody else comes to you with a different postmodern gospel, May they be eternally condemned. There's no other gospel except the one gospel that's been entrusted to us. And Paul says, we don't distort, distort that. And we don't distort it either. <laughs> Just in case. They distort it. But we don't. Now, Paul says, we don't do that. Uh, in fact, he tells the Ephesian elders, pastors, in Acts chapter 20, he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The good, the bad, the ugly. All right, so Paul's just saying here, we don't do any of that because we've received the sacred trust, this glorious ministry, the Holy Spirit's in our hearts. We're representing God. So of course, the parts that warm your heart and the parts that make you queasy, the parts that make you, that affirm you and the parts that comfort you and the parts that convict and condemn behavior. You gotta tell the whole thing because it's God's message and we fear him and we're gonna tell the truth even if that means push back to us, right? That's what he's saying. So for the sake of argument, he goes on now, verses three and four, Paul is gonna concede and he's gonna say, because here's one of their accusations against them. Why doesn't anybody turn out to his meetings? Why are our uh, meetings larger and more popular and more attended? So he has to answer and he's gonna, for the sake of argument, he's gonna concede. Okay, let me tell you. So he says, uh, uh, because not everyone was excited to hear Paul's gospel. You know, oh, everybody's a sinner. You're powerless, you're lost. <clears throat> you have to come to Jesus and bow and surrender everything to him. You have to repent of your sins. You have to stop being sexually uh, immoral and idolatrous and deny self, pick up cross and follow. There's some bad news in the good news. And unless you get over the bad news, you're never gonna get to the good news, right? And so they're saying, look at this. You know, we've got a packed house. And look at him. Who's even going to his meetings? And so he says, even if our message is veiled, even if there is, it is unpopular, and even though, because the gospel is, it's terribly uh, unpopular. He says, so, okay, granted. It may be unpopular, and it may have massive rejection and not be well-received, but it's not my fault. It's not our fault, and it's not the fault of the message. It's the free will of those who are rejecting the truth and as a result are perishing. So check out the verses here. I love 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. Here it goes. 
Because unbelievers refuse to love the truth that would have saved them, they are deceived and under the spell of the evil one. And so now he's going to go in to say, you want to know why nobody wants to hear the gospel and everybody loves what you're uh, laying out there because you're tickling their ears and scratching where they itch. He's saying, if our gospel's not working out there, I'll tell you whose fault it is. It's A, the unbeliever who has resisted the truth and opened themselves up to Satan's blinding them. And nobody is blinded by Satan unless they want to be. That's the truth. And so he's going to lay the blame where the blame goes because they're blaming him in the message. Look at it. It's unpopular. Who wants to hear it? You have to pick up your cross every day. And, you know, count it all joy when you fall into troubles. And you got to love your enemies. What's to hear that, right? They want to hear something else. And so he's saying, listen, as a person is seduced, one writer says, as a person is seduced by sin to love a lie and resist the truth, they invite the devil to strike them blind. Unable to see the light of the light of the world, who is Christ, they're only hoping of escape. A blindness that could have been avoided, a blindness that can be quickly cured by simply turning to Jesus, who calls himself the truth. <clears throat> My friends, you really want to dwell on what's true, and you really never want to resist the truth and embrace a lie. And it's very convenient to do that about our lives. Because when you resist truth and you embrace even a small lie, you're opening yourself up for further deception. And that's what sort of is going on here. And Paul's just laying it out. He continues his thoughts on five and six. He says, don't get the wrong idea here. I know I'm talking a lot about myself. We don't do this. We don't do that. Uh, we're not the ones who do this. In fact, we use integrity. He says, don't get the wrong idea. It's not about us. We don't preach ourselves here, verse five and six. And, and nor is it about them. This isn't about a religion or, or the false teachers or about me. He says, <clears throat> I may have to spend time defending and explaining myself and my actions, my ministry and my motives, but it's not about me. It's about Christ. And, and you see there, verse five, the essence of the gospel is this, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Lord. What else matters? If Jesus Christ is God, nothing else matters except surrendering to him and doing his will. So it's Jesus, God the Son, who was crucified for our sins, raised from the dead to offer us eternal life. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the implication here by contrast to the, uh, to the Corinthians, he's saying the imposters focus on themselves, right? It's all about them for notoriety and financial gain. And you're enslaved by them, he says later in chapter 11. Then he says, for us, Jesus is our message, verses five and six. And instead of enslaving you with legalism, we serve you for his sake. That's really sweet. We love to see your lives set free by God's grace. So he says, why? What's driving us? Well, we've seen the light. Let me paraphrase verse six for you. It's beautiful. He says, the same God. Oh, you want to know what's driving me? He says, I've seen the light. All right, and I want you to see the light. 
but he does it in such a poetic way. Here's what he says, verse six. The same God who spoke in the beginning when darkness and chaos covered the face of the earth, who gave the command in the beginning in Genesis, let there be light. That same God, when darkness and chaos covered our hearts and our lives, God spoke the same command, let there be light. And the light of the world appeared. And everything we need to know about God, we now see in the face of Christ, who shines in our hearts, life and light and truth and immortality. It's a reference, no doubt, to the Damascus Road where a light from heaven brighter than the sun, that's what he says three times he gives his testimony in the book of Acts. Three times it says, a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And so Paul says, with an unveiled face and an unveiled heart, I've seen that light. That light has transformed me. And now I preach. And Christ makes his appeal through me. And that's what's driving me. I want you to see the truth and walk in light. So continuing on, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure, this beautiful ministry in jars of clay or clay pots to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in, the, in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive and are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our... For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies, our physical bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Aren't you glad you're here tonight? Because I bet you have thought, I've always wondered what exactly that means. And tonight, guess what? You're going to find out. So he says, okay, we have a ministry, a wow ministry, and we have this treasure in not so of a wow container. Us. A pretty vulnerable, pretty ordinary clay pot. Diamonds and sapphires and rubies from heaven emptied into what? Just this ordinary clay pot. And this is going to explain so much about the Christian life. So let's talk about this. So we have a ministry. We have a treasure. Note takers. Point two. We have a treasure. So... Uh, the glory of God, the light of Christ is poured into our hearts. And of course, our hearts are mentioned here as a clay. We are the clay pot, a human body that's subject to decay and disease and vulnerable to injury and all kinds of foolishness. Heaven's treasure deposited into the clay pot. Now, here's the paradox. Of course, heaven's riches in a clay pot. Well, we've received this glorious ministry and message, but nevertheless, he pours the Holy Spirit into people who struggle 
broken people, people who are just ordinary and plain and weak and struggle with all kinds of things. He's come into a fallen world and into depraved and broken people with hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, your heart and mine is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Unless God does a work in our hearts, our, our hearts are just corrupt, says the Bible. Part of that bad news before you get to the good news right there. And so Paul's answering here his opponent's accusations. Paul's always weak. He's always sick. He's always in trouble. Uh, you guys get saved and you have more troubles than you had before. What's your problem? We preach this whole other philosophy of how to get better, how to improve, how to make money. And you guys, you know, you're preaching something that doesn't seem to, you know, take away all of our struggles and make us happy 24-7, right? And so he's saying, there's a reason for that because you misunderstand the complete nature of Christianity, you think he came down to wave a magic wand and give you heaven right now. Heaven comes later. This is a train wreck. This is a lowering into a nightmare and walking us through a nightmare. Twisted metal and broken bodies and shards of glass everywhere. And he says, I'm going to work it all together. I'm not taking the train away. This whole ship is going down, but you're going up. So there's this dichotomy. He pours his riches and power and resurrection and life into a fallen body with a fallen mind in a fallen world in a, in a creation that's subjected to futility and frustration and, and under a bondage to decay. Romans chapter 8 says, what, what a dichotomy. And he's going to talk about that dichotomy. You see it right here. <clears throat> so this is the reason why when you get saved, Paul's testimony, he stands up and he says, I've got a testimony. I've been shipwrecked three times. I, I received a beating with rods five times. I've been lashed with a whip and flogged three times. You know, I've gone hungry. I've been cold. I've been in danger from Roberts. Roberts. <laughs> Robbers, and if your name is Robert, <laughs> lay off the Apostle Paul. I've been in danger in the city and in the country, on the oceans. What kind of testimony is that? It's a testimony that makes sense because that's what Christianity is. God pours into our lives, not to make everything perfect, but to make us overcomers in an imperfect, fallen world where there's death and disease and trouble and nightmares and evil. That's what he does. That's what Christianity is. It's this dance of life and death in the same body. That's what he's talking about. Let me get into this instead of talking about it. Paul's gospel, the Lord comes down <clears throat> and walks us through. So here's what he's saying. He's done this for one reason, he, and it's not accidental, and it's deliberate because he likes to show off his power uh, through the weakness of man. And so verse seven paraphrase says, God pours priceless heavenly treasure into us fragile clay jars 
to make it clear that the great transformation, the goodness, the new power, the resurrected life at work in us is from God and not from ourselves. So he says, allow me to illustrate this weird paradox, this dichotomy, uh, two entirely different forces going on inside the Christian's life in a fallen body and fallen world clay pot, all right? So he says, uh, on one hand, we're hard-pressed. That word means to be squeezed the very life out of you. He says, on one hand, we're squeezed, we're pressured. We're also perplexed. That word means bewildered or cornered, backed into a corner. Ah, no place to go, trapped. The clay pots, we're, we're persecuted. That word means hounded or hunted to have your life at risk because of the gospel. And then he says, we're struck down. This is verse nine, right? Now, struck down, it means to be beaten into depression, to be brought low. So he's looking at this and he says, now, on one hand, there's that fragile clay, broken, vulnerable thing where we're squeezed and hounded and hunted and perplexed and persecuted and depressed out of our minds. And he says, at one point in my life, in the beginning of this book, he said, I just gave up. I just thought, I despaired unto death. He said, I just gave up hope of living. The clay pot side. And then, There's this other side. There's the treasure side. There's the life side. He says, yeah, we're squeezed, but not crushed. Somehow we're cornered, but we never lose hope. There's always a way out. Uh, Hounded, but never abandoned, never left alone. And depressed, but never down and out. Now, so he's saying, when the clay pot is sick, the treasure is, I got a physician on board the great physician. And, and when the clay pot is broke, no money, I've got a treasure within. He's my provider. And when the clay pot is disoriented, I've got this treasure on board. He's my guide. He's leading me in straight paths and besides quiet waters. When the clay pot is falsely accused, the treasure within, he's my defender. When the clay heart is broken, The treasure comforts us when the whole world turns against you. Clay pot. The treasure says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The whole world, your father and your mother may turn, but I will never forsake you. Clay pot. Forsaken by everybody, betrayed, Treasure. So he says, look, folks, the life of Christ is in you and the death of Christ, always. So there's rejection, the overlooked for the job promotion, the death of Christ, you're mocked, the rejection of Christ, you carry that around in you. The having to die uh, to yourself, and your, your, your besetting sins, to say no to your worldly passions and the way you want to live your life. That's the death part. And he says, at the same time, you carry the, the, the life of Christ in you, the resurrected power, the comfort, 
the working all things for good, the endurance, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness. It's this dance of death and life of Christ in your heart, the clay, the diamonds together. That is Christianity. And, and if you think that when you got saved, God was supposed to make all your challenges go away and, and, and take away all the bad guys in the story and all of that, it just isn't true. Now, that said, when you do get saved and Christ comes on board, a lot of things improve and life is a lot better. But uh, it still has its ups and downs, highs and lows. And the bad guys still take a shot at you and unfair things happen to you. And you go to the doctor and he says, oh, that doesn't look good. Even when you love the Lord. And he says, listen, I'm going to work that together for good. I'm going to advance the gospel. I'm going to deepen your faith. I'm going to refine your character. It's all working together for good. But I really like the balance there. This isn't heaven. Heaven's coming down the road. And one day, he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. And someday, when we graduate, or he returns, which seems very, very close, <laughs> if you're watching the news, um, we're going to trade in the clay pot for, quote, here, here's a nice quote for you. He will transform our lowly bodies, the clay pot, so that we will be like his glorious body. Philippians 3, 21. He's promising you a body that Jesus had. The same sort of model we get. So he gets a Tesla, right? Whatever it is, you know. Uh, you get the same thing that the Son of God is, is moving around in. And in that day, the, the diamonds will match the container. The container will match the treasure, all right? It'll just be one package. And the earth and creation will match as well. Because there'll be no, it says in Romans 8, even the creation is moaning and groaning and saying, Lord Jesus, come with its earthquakes and its tsunamis and its storms and its sinkholes. That all came about because of sin. And when Christ appears, he's going to lift the curse of our bodies, of this world, and of the earth itself. And we even get a new heavens, new solar system, everything is going to be changed. Uh, but it's not until we see him. So we have to get that there. Until then, the summary statement in verse 10, which I really like, you know, he says, we carry around the, in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also. But what I really like is verse 12. He sums up the whole thing by saying, by the way, here's a perfect example. We've been beaten almost to death, but guess what? You guys are going to be in heaven. So do you see? Death's at work in me and Luke and Mark and Aristarchus and T Silas and Titus. Death's been really working in us because we're really suffering as the leaders. But you guys aren't suffering like we are. In fact, you guys know the Lord there at Corinth. 
So you see how death is working, something beautiful in life, and he's glad to do it. Now he's going to talk about what motivates his uh, sacrificial lifestyle. 13 through 15, it is written, I believed, therefore I've spoken. That's one, Psalm 116, verse 10a, right there. I believe, therefore I have spoken. He's quoting Psalm 116. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus, present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow for the glory of God. I I really like this one. Uh, Now, so he said, uh, we have a ministry, we have treasure. Point number three, we have faith. We have faith. How does this all work? He says, how can I be so confident? Even though I've, I've, I've suffered so much. He says, I have faith. He says, I can endure all my suffering, persecution, trouble, and trials. Because I have, here's what he's saying. Because I have the same kind of faith that the writer of Psalm 116 has, who's spoken confidence because of his faith, even though he's facing a really impossible situation. So let me tell you about Psalm 116. Uh, This must have been a little saying uh, where he says, I believed, therefore I have spoken. I think Jews used to use that line. In other words, uh, because nobody would know what you're talking about, really, because it's so vague. But here's what what the context is. Psalm 116, uh, the psalmist had this deadly illness. So verses one through nine, he's like, I was disillusioned. I thought I was going to die. I was planning my uh, funeral and all disillusioned and all of this. And then in 10a, suddenly he says, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And the rest of the psalm says, starts planning his life again. That he's going to be okay and God's going to get him through this and all of that. And so Paul is saying that same faith that looked at his grim sickness and just thought, there's no way out of this one. But because he believed, he spoke and just said, you know what? Things are gonna work out. He says, I got that same kind of faith. And he says, I have the faith that God is, will, even if I'm martyred, which is he's alluding to, that God will raise me up, follow me in the text. God will raise me up to heaven, all of us, you as well when he appears, and we will with Jesus be together in heaven because I have faith. So therefore, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Of course I'm confident. Of course I don't lose hope. Of course I keep preaching. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the kind of faith he has. And then he, he, he rounds out the thought with this. I really, and another thing that floats my boat, he says, is, is that I endure my suffering not only just because I have faith that God is going to get me through and raise me up and we're all going to see each other in heaven. So he says what's also important is that we reach more and more lives, save and help people who in turn give thanks and glory to God. So in short, he's saying, I'm doing this for him, for the glory of God, that more and more people come to know him, which makes God happy, and more and more people are thanking God and giving him glory, 
So he's really saying, listen, you know Galatians chapter two, verse 20, that says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what I hear him saying, is that to give God glory, to make God happy, that's why I'm doing what I do. That's why we don't lose heart. That's why we're here still enduring all things. And so let's finish up now, 16, 17, and 18, and we're done with the chapter. So now he's gonna tell us a few more reasons why he won't give up. He says, therefore, back to verse one, So a nice, really bookends here in the chapter. We don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And everybody over 50 said, all right, I must have a young crowd here tonight or a lot of people in denial. (laughs) Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles. uh, Now, now, come on, Paul. Paul (laughs) said, I'll read that list to you again. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, exhortation time. We fix our eyes not on what we can see, but on what is unseen for the, what's, the things you can see, they're temporary. But the real things, what is unseen That's what counts the most because they're eternal. So we close out chapter four with well-known and well-loved verses. But don't you love when well-known, well-loved verses kind of pop up in context? It's like, oh, uh, now it's richer and more uh, profound, I think. So a fourth point, we have eternal reward. All right, we have eternal reward. So he's moving from motivation to an exhortation here. And and so, yes, of course, we don't lose heart because there's nothing that can defeat us because Christ is with us and the power of the resurrection and all of this. So here's another dichotomy. He's saying we live in this world where there's the uh, outward and the inward. So outwardly, society seems in a downward spiral. Nations and diplomacy are crumbling. Uh, There's a world and moral decline, uh, moral and spiritual uh, decrease, right? And our bodies are aging. And we see signs of that. And it's upsetting, you know? Uh, So all living things around us are destined to die outward. So the second law of thermodynamics is what he's talking about outwardly. Matter and energy deteriorates gradually over time. Why is that? Why can't things just remain as they are? But if you put an apple down within a matter of time, that apple is just going to fall apart. Why is that? It's because it's a fallen World. So outwardly, we have this body and this world that's kind of in this bondage to decay. Inwardly, the first law of heavenly dynamics is this. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And then you have this as well. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God 
our God endures forever. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. So you've got outer and inner, right? And he says the outer is crumbling all the time. You see evidence of that. You know, I tell you about going to the doctor for my aches and pains, right? And so my doctor's new question to me, which is so irritating, <laughs> is I'll say, you know, and I've got this or that or the other thing. He goes, how old are you? You know, and he goes, yeah, that's about right. And I'm like, well, I have moderate, you know, I've got this ringing in my ears. How old are you? You know, I, and I, I, whatever it is, how old are you? What, you know, do you have to remind me? I have to pay a $30 copay for this? <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, and you look in the mirror, you say, dad, you know, it's like, what happened here? You know? Now, you ladies, you would not say that. You would say mom, right? <laughs> Hopefully. I saw a few of you looking at me like, I don't say that. Well, this is why we don't lose hope, though, because inwardly we're being renewed day by day. At the same time, we see the whole world and the clay pot falling apart. He says, but inwardly. And here's the problem. The, the decay... And the outward is visible, but the renewal is invisible. So that's why he's going to go to an exhortation now to say, you better have your mind in the right place. Because what you can see is depressing. But what you can't see is more real, more important, and very encouraging if you have faith. If you have faith. So a heavenly perspective, he says, in light of eternity... And what's in store for co-heirs with Christ, he says, 80 to 100 years of life is a blip. It's nothing. It's a blink compared to millions, time, billions of years that you're going to enjoy with the Lord. So uh, verse 17, in light of the glory to come, the rewards, the honor, the wow of paradise, if you take that, and, and kind of compare it to the worst evil experience of your life. It's going to look like a paper cut. It's going to look like a mild headache or a stubbed toe. It's just not going to be a big deal. And in light of the longevity of eternal life, he says, your longest heartache, the longest trial of your life is going to be momentary. It's going to be nothing compared to billions times billions of years, he says. But do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? If you did, you wouldn't be falling apart all the time, and nor would I. So he says, come on. Here's a new way of looking. Verse, this beautiful verse that's looking straight at you here. There's value in trouble handled correctly, handling your troubles biblically, remaining faithful is a rewardable behavior. So he says, I want you to look at the trouble as a friend that's producing something for you. You're not just suffering for suffering's sake. God is using the suffering and accumulating, as you handle it correctly, accumulating reward of an immense, eternal, glorious weight, whatever that means, it sounds really intense and good, right? He says, that trouble rightly borne, 
biblically that you are you stay obedient, you stay sweet, you're forgiving, you're serving the Lord, even though he says, you're accumulating, it's working for you, it's accruing something that when you get there, you're gonna compare, you're gonna go, <laughs> you will almost regret not having more opportunity to accrue more an eternal reward. Does that sound crazy? Yeah, no, because that's forever, right? The only time you will ever get to express your faith is now. And then forever, you can't do it anymore. You can never show God how much you still love him even though your whole world's upside down because it never will be again. And your eyes will be open. You will never be able to accrue any reward by showing God how much faith you have. Only in this life. This is your chance. This is your big chance. Do not waste your troubles. And wasting your troubles is praying them away, praying them away, pretending they're not there, hating them, avoiding them. You're wasting it. Instead of saying, God, work with me, refine me. Let this polish me down, Lord. Have your work. I'll cooperate with you with this. Of course you pray three times. Take it from me. But after three times, you better start saying, Lord, help me accept this now and to make the best of what you seem to allow, to want to allow in my life. Amen? So let me tell you this quick little thing. I love uh, Romans 8. It says, For I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Listen, uh, a friend of mine stood up in a courtroom, packed his wife and mother of his five kids, was killed in a drunk driving uh, incident. The woman had multiple DUIs. The daughter was injured but survived, but the, man, uh, but the wife died on impact and left him with five kids. You could hear a pin drop as he read his victim statement to the court. And it was sweet. It was wonderful. It was what? It was forgiving. It was, it talked about the Lord and had compassion. You could almost hear the ching in heaven of the eternal weight of glory being deposited into that man's account. And when he gets there and sees the thing that he went through, that ordeal and that loss as a Christian and faithful and obedient and forgiving and impacting others with the gospel through his pain and loss... Oh, when he sees it, it's going to be one of those, what? And that, my friend, is waiting for you. It's waiting for you because of how you're bearing your cross and the criticisms and the wounds and the squeezing so tight you think you're going to lose your mind. But you're bearing it and you're coming under it. 
and you're being obedient and as godly as you can. And there's a ching. That's what he's saying. You earn the cha-chings. You don't earn your salvation. That's a free gift. You can't do anything about that. But you're either going to squander your opportunities or you're going to embrace them and let the life and death dance do its thing in you and you're going to cooperate. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you, Lord, for a win-win situation with you, Lord. However our lives go, if we're walking with you and loving you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, everything's going to work out. So we thank you, Lord. Help us to have this kind of faith and to be transformed, Lord, but to fix our eyes on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.